How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the SCD podcast. This week, we have a guest on, Alex Anderson, who is a physical therapist. Alex, how are you doing? Doing great, man. Glad to be here. How you guys doing? Yeah. Wonderful. Great. Doing good. Well, I uh, just wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, if you could briefly just introduce yourself to our audience, who you are, what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I always listen to your guys' stuff every week. Uh, like you said, I'm a doctor of physical therapy. I've practiced in multiple different settings to now. I've worked with uh, athletes ranging from your weekend warrior to your Division One athlete to uh, your weightlifter, powerlifter, uh, hypertrophy trainee. I've been working an outpatient for three years now, and just this week I transitioned and took a home health job that uh, I'm hoping is going to give me a little bit of time on the side to build my own independent practice. So I, I train for hypertrophy strength, uh, just like pretty much everyone listening to this podcast, I'm sure. Um, been doing that since I was in high school, really, uh, when I just wanted to become more athletic and picked up a book called the Vertical Jump Development Bible because I could barely touch the net. I started back squatting and a few months later, I was grabbing the rim and uh, the rest was kind of history. So I, I fell in love with weightlifting after my basketball career was over and uh, just trying to pay it back now in, in the therapy field. That's awesome. So as far as um, home health, what does that kind of entail? Is that um, uh, you said outpatient? So like going to people's houses or? Yep. So uh, this this current job, I have uh, people after having joint replacement surgeries or anybody that's been hospitalized, deconditioned, maybe a fall risk. I uh, get a call with their address, go out to their house and do therapy in the house. So very minimal equipment. Um, you have to get pretty creative. You know, a lot of times it's slowly reducing the height of a chair somebody's doing a squat from to stand up or uh, practicing steps, doing some balance exercises, even simple as reaching up over your head into a cabinet. But yeah. it's it's amazing. It's amazing, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit tonight, um, how, how you can scale common movements that we're used to and take for granted to people to get them just to a base level of function. Yeah, most definitely. I think uh, just mm -hmm. the basic... The basic exercises like uh something such as a squat a squatting pattern and what you how you use that in your daily life or some sort of overhead movement to kind of be able to reach something yep. and be able to, to to um you know balance it and and uh and actually uh be able to handle the load my, my question is do you have like what what carryover if any do you see from some of your training like your hypertrophy training um do you have any sort of carryover you see uh, between you know these these people who are you know more sedentary generally uh, coming off these injuries and and how you kind of apply your practice to them yeah for sure and that's probably going to be a big topic once we get into it tonight but the same movement patterns that we all do just with extra load for the purpose of hypertrophy applies to all of these individuals from deconditioned senior adults in home health to your average weekend warrior with say knee or shoulder pain it's it's taking the movement patterns and altering the variables of which they're performed to meet somebody where there are where they are with the idea of reaching a certain goal. So your your general person who let's just say has a knee replacement and is having trouble getting off the toilet, that's doing a lower squat pattern, right? So we have to change the variable of increasing or decreasing the range of motion to make it better. And I'll often scale it to let's use less or more hand assistance if need be, even to the point of standing in front of someone and putting my hands out and letting, letting them use me as assistance. And then it's progressive overload from there. 
slowly decreasing, slowly decreasing the height of the surface, increasing the range of motion, maybe staggering your feet a little bit to preference one leg or the other. There's a lot you can do with it that, that you wouldn't think about just your average Joe walking down the street, but we all do every day and sort of do it just automatic. It's interesting to, to take that knowledge in my training life and then bring these variables up to people who can't perform at a higher level or are deconditioned and just see a light bulb go on. It's, yeah. it's pretty rewarding. And then it's even better when, say, you go back to the next visit or a week from now and they can just recall the information and do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about, you know, in, in our, in our realm, a lot of the time you're talking about like better, you know, physique outcome, but you're talking about quality of life for a lot of these people too. So yeah. the impact can be pretty great too. So that, that mm -hmm. is really cool in that regard. Um, well, Trevor was uh, the person who had the idea for doing this podcast. I think um, injury and rehab are some questions that we all commonly get. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, we have the common answer of, you know, avoid pain, go see a physical therapist, right? If it is uh, an actual, um, you know, injury that is, is uh, uh, you know, chronic uh, or something yeah. that was acute that happened that, you know, is causing you pain in your daily life. Um so I think this is going to be really relevant, but uh, Trevor, if you could kick us off with some of uh, the questions that you had for Alex. Yeah. Uh, so I just get kind of digging into some of the things you already said, you know, you're talking about like, you know, a lot of the things you're doing with patients is the same movement patterns that we all know. It's the same squatting patterns. It's the same hinging patterns, the same pressing patterns, all these things. Um, and I just kind of wanted to get into like this, this idea that like a lot of people, you know, they get hurt and their first idea is stop doing everything. I hurt my knee, so I'm going to stop training legs. And you're just what you just described is graded exposure. Yep. That's the term. Yeah. And, and that's <laughs> the thing that like, I just, if you want to talk a little bit about that, like just a little bit more in depth about like using graded exposure to, you know, deal with rehabbing from an injury coming back into regular training. Yeah, for sure. Um, and to set the stage a little bit for that, you know, it's all it's all it's all contextual, context dependent. And I think coming from the from the perspective of of the healthcare profession, historically, if somebody went to their doctor, the primary care physician, and said, "I'm having pain with X or Y," the initial thought process was let's take some imaging let's identify whatever anatomical structure is causing you this pain and why it's broken and in, in my world that's called your biomedical model it's very it's very much x part of your body is injured or abnormal therefore you're having pain from it and with years of neurological research we know that's not the case um, it's entirely possible to be experiencing pain but not be injured and that's that's a little byline I give people all the time is pain does not equal injury. Pain can sometimes just mean you hurt. It's a it's a sensory response to a stimulus, essentially. So with that graded exposure, you know, to your point, somebody went to their doctor and this still happens a lot. You go to your doctor and say, hey, I'm having knee or shoulder pain. And they'll tell you now just for insurance reimbursement purposes. Stop whatever causes you the pain. Take four to six weeks off. Here's a referral. Go see a physical occupational therapist. And that's well, that will typically be the experience you get. So degraded exposure, there's commonly two different approaches to that. Um, let's say you go see a physical therapist and you detail, this is my problem that I'm having. 
Um, the graded exposure side of it is what I mentioned earlier is meeting somebody where they're at. So I'm always looking for an entry point to, to start building this person back toward their goal. So let's say you come to me and say, I have knee pain for an easy example. I'm going to ask you questions like, when does your knee pain occur? If th this is just an example of your average walking off the street person, when does your knee pain occur? What makes it worse? What makes it better? What's your lifestyle like? All of those questions will give me an idea of where someone is in their journey trying to get through this pain. And the most important question is probably what's your goal? And that leads directly to the graded exposure part. Because if you can find the point to where someone can perform something similar or that activity that's their goal, you can adjust all the variables to start to where their symptoms are controlled and then grade that exposure to be more and more and more. So the common thought in the past of take four to six weeks, rest, don't do the thing that hurts, is a little flawed in that you essentially detrain during that period from whatever stimulus is causing you the pain, right? So if you're having pain going up the steps and somebody tells you don't go up the steps, then you might feel better in the short term. But once you go back to that activity or something that stresses your body similarly, that pain's probably going to come back if the issue, the underlying issue isn't fully addressed. So essentially, that's just the Band-Aid over the bullet hole instead of addressing the, the main cause of the issue. Is yeah, that... uh, oh, no, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> that's just it's it's just kind of really cool to hear you describe that in the the physical therapy sense because that's you know uh, you know a lot of times in more of the like coaching sense strength conditioning stuff um, you know we'll we'll find that people have a exposure threshold to intensity here mm -hmm. that's a really common one. And they're like, oh well, when I'm you know when I'm squatting heavy, it hurts my knees. Okay, well, squat lighter, mm -hmm. you know. And you could do things to you know make that hard, but it's the same model of just graded exposure. You know, we're finding your your threshold of pain, and we're sorry, my dogs are being assholes tonight. <laughs> I don't even. We're slowly uh, bringing you know testing that threshold and pushing it a little bit over time. To improve the outcome of pain and performance, mm -hmm. it's really cool listening to you talk about it in that that more healthcare. Uh... And, and if you if you just go strictly by similarity and definitions, graded exposure is progressive overload. It's just in applied in the context of rehab from an injury or the progression of addressing a pain issue. So like you said, the exact same increases that you would see in hypertrophy strength or athletic training, increase in resistance, increase in intensity, decrease in rest times, an increase in volume, uh, in improving your technique to, in context of your goal. All of those things are the blueprint to a solid rehab plan for improving pain or rehabbing from an injury. Um, and all of that you know, context is just so important in, in hypertrophy training, athletics, healthcare field. There's really no one set, this works for everybody, go do it. I wish it were that simple. My life would be a whole lot easier. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, and, you, and you have to get the baseline information from the individual you're working with 
to find out what their triggers are, what their what their provo provocative factors are, what their alleviating factors are, and get an idea of where they want to be at the end of that process of, of working with you. So in that sense, it's definitely no different than any of the coaching you guys do. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I, I had a question. Um, uh, a lot of the time in the, and maybe you can talk about this uh, a little bit, but um, when in the occurrence of an injury, um, you had mentioned avoidance of of the 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 thing that that causes the pain, right? Mm -hmm. um, finding the movements that cause relief, and and in from what I, my understanding is, you know, loading those however you can. Uh, why why would um, finding movements that are pain free and then using those? How does that contribute? And I imagine it's multifactorial. How does that contribute to the uh, the recovery process? It, it's yeah there, there is a lot of factors to play into it going back to what i said briefly a little bit ago the biomedical model used to be you you have a certain tissue or structure that's damaging your body causing the pain and we, we know now that's unequivocally not true um recently there was a study looking at people with low back pain and imaging images of their spine the majority of people who were reporting low back pain symptoms had no abnormal findings on an MRI. But there was a certain percentage of that same analysis where people who had degenerative disc disease, herniated discs, spinal nerve compression were asymptomatic. So moving away from that understanding that a specific damage or insult to your body doesn't always equal pain is really the first thing that I would try to explain to someone in that scenario build that confidence to to sort of alleviate the psychosocial factors of fear avoidance of pain that's a big one that causes pain symptoms to linger um, being more confident in the movements that they're trying to do and then that's where the point you brought up comes in finding movements that they can do that are apply to the principle of specificity that are that thing maybe adjusting the technique and how they're performing it or taking a movement that loads the similar tissues or is a close relation to the movement someone's having pain or difficulty with, and then progressing there. Because essentially what you're doing is back to that graded exposure, you're giving a sensory stimulus to your nervous system to interpret that input as not painful. And if it's using the similar structures that's giving that stimulus, you're, you're going to eventually have that breakthrough moment. But the caveat with that is, and where a lot of people kind of self-inflict the injury to themselves, is not sticking to that to that plan and executing it and going right back to the things that are causing them pain and provoking it over and over and over. And going back to a little bit of more modern neurological research, your nervous system can become hypersensitized to certain stimuluses and essentially learn to have a response to that stimulus. So let's say you're having shoulder pain, elbow pain with bench pressing, and you say, yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to reduce the weight a little bit, but it's still there. And you try to load it back up and the pain gets worse. You're essentially teaching your body to respond to that movement pattern with a pain signal. So to get out of that, you have to give it a pain-free signal in similarity to that movement or loading pattern to help improve the symptoms. And, and with that, it's, it's a little nuanced in how you approach it, right? So just like everything, it depends. But a, a good rule of thumb, if you're having pain with a certain movement or loading pattern, is 
if your symptoms are controlled and in, in my, in my world, that phrase is used to your tolerance, but I think that's a little, a little vague because everybody's pain tolerance is different. You know, all of us in this call, all of our pain tolerances are different, but if you put an objective measure to that, am I doing something that my pain levels are consistent? Yes or no. If yes, and they don't increase as you're in, increasing the intensity of the movement, the volume, or any of those other variables, it's probably okay to try to work through it to a point. Now, if you're doing that movement and increasing the intensity and the symptoms aren't controlled, meaning they just get worse and worse, the worse, the more loads you add, the more repetitions you do, the more sets you add, it's a good idea to back off from it. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very interesting to think of pain as not only a physiological response, but I mean, and it is, as you're explaining it, physiological, but there's a psychological component too, it seems like to mm -hmm. some degree. Um, yeah. And there's so many factors that play into it that, that we know now the guys that, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with barbell medicine, but mm -hmm. they do a great job talking about pain research and exercise science. And th there was, they have multiple articles talking about your, your nutrition, your sleep quality, your beliefs on the pain someone's experiencing, your uh, past prior experiences with pain, all of these psychosocial factors play into it, even the narratives that you're told. So if one of you guys went to a doctor, came to me and you were unsure about your pain and didn't know how to navigate it, and I told you, you know, oh, you're having elbow pain, it means that your tricep tendon is frayed and you leave there not having any knowledge. Otherwise, that's that narrative is going to play into your head. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's something that we see in in personal training. Uh, yep. It's like someone feels like broken, like someone does an mm -hmm. assessment of them. You have this, this, this. And I'm, I'm sure it exists in your field, too, where someone comes yeah. in, they're trying to sell someone on all the things that they're broken. You're, 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 this is, you know, dysfunctional and this is broken. And mm -hmm. this person leaves oh, feeling yeah. like demoralized and they use that as a selling point as, to, you know, hey, well, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix you. Um, so that, all that's the time. A, that. Yeah, yeah, that's really uh, an an important thing. Is is um, I, I, I'm curious, kind of how how you navigate it. I mean, you kind of alluded to that, but yeah, you know, it's it's not a common it's not an uncommon occurrence to to see somebody in clinic or or to have somebody. You know, I'm I'm all the time. I'm kind of a Reddit junkie. I get on the fitness Reddit a lot, and there are a lot of people that post on there that say, "Hey, I'm having X and Y pain. I went to my doctor, or my physio, and they told me this. Can anybody help me?" And, you know, it's usually met with a response go see another PT. <laughs> so it's, it, it's interesting, but yeah, it, navigating that is, is really hard because once, once people are dug into a philosophy or an opinion, trying to present alternate information to that can be a difficult challenge. Yeah. If, if you, if you meet it head on in a combative way or just straight up say, no, that's not true. Let me tell you what is. If, if someone has had a good experience with that philosophy that they're talking about, or maybe even temporary pain relief, you're going to be met with some resistance and you're probably not going to get the buy-in with that person that you need to have a successful plan. So it's oftentimes not just one conversation that, that those opinions change. It, it, it's kind of a little bit of chipping away at it over time. So commonly the first time I, I, I meet people in clinic, I ask those questions. What are your lifestyles? You know, what do you know about what you're experiencing? How do you think you can approach it and get their information? That way I know in the future how to navigate those little potential snags. So, it, and then even showing someone success, right? Like 
off the top of my head, a common example I could think of was was someone who was having shoulder pain with uh, with lateral raises and overhead presses that I saw recently. And they reflected to me on the first visit. Well, I, I just don't know what's going on because I've been doing what I saw of keeping my shoulder blades down and back with all these movements and it's it's not helping. So <laughs> then I know like, okay, well, we're going to have to talk a little bit about shoulder mechanics and what your scapula actually does and how that relates to these pressing movements that you're having trouble with but not right now. So it, even with that person, it started off with just encouraging them to put their hands on the wall, take their hands off the wall as far as they can until they feel a little bit of pain, come back down. It looks like an overhead press. It's not loaded. Their symptoms were controlled. I didn't touch the narrative of let your shoulder blades rotate upward. Don't try to do that. Just do what feels natural the first time and then we'll build from there. So that that slowly morphed into the next time. Okay, you know, that didn't make my pain get any worse. Okay, cool. Well, here, let's put the pretty pink dumbbell in your hand and clinic that weighs one pound and do a lateral raise for me. And they do it, of course, with that same technique of trying to pack their shoulder blades here and they get to here and start like shrugging upwards and, oh, that hurts. Okay, yeah, of course. So now then you say, reel it back a little bit, go within the range of motion that you can until you start to feel pain and don't go any further. They get that little bit of success, get to that area, and you start to see, okay, we're doing the movement. It's not as painful anymore. Builds a little confidence. Don't touch the narrative yet, right? You got to get someone to see the plan. Then when that happens, I usually try to broach the subject a little bit. Hey, you know, thinking back to the first time I saw you, you mentioned this. Let's talk about it a little bit. And then I'll get into the anatomy. Here's, here's what your shoulder does. Here's the mechanics of it. So you're fighting against your own mechanics, performing the movement that way. Try it this way. Don't think about pinning your shoulder blades down and back. Just think about controlling the weight, controlling the movement. Stop when it starts to hurt. And sure enough, you see them start working through that a little bit. And eventually, typically, the light bulb goes on. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe per maybe performing it this way was causing me issues. And if I change that, it gets better. And I'm, I'm, I'm never one in clinic, at least, to especially working with weightlifters or athletes, to really be the technique police, right? Like... I know a lot of people in my field are so concerned about the quality of someone's movement, their pelvic positioning, their their shoulder blade positioning. And at the end of the day, that's kind of minoring, majoring in the minors a little bit. Um, so bringing that back to your point, how to get someone to make that progression, to be willing to open to talk about the, the narratives that they've been told before is showing them success and then starting to talk it's starting to talk a little bit more about changing the way they were performing something if they were having a, having a problem with it yeah that's uh, yeah, that's so really a little really bit of a long-winded answer but it's go ahead trevor having buy-in and, and momentum with them mm -hmm. yeah yeah, they've, yeah they've, 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 and it's really important to to at least start talking about having setbacks because that's that's inevitable i i can't tell you one time i've seen someone over a full plan of care that they haven't had bad days mm -hmm. and it's important to talk about that and say yeah you know you're going to have days to where you experience more pain it's not that linear progression of i'm here and i hurt and i'm just going to keep getting better over the next two or three weeks before i'm pain free but that's always good opportunities to talk about what were some factors around that pain flare-up you know, did, did you, did you train, did you train that day? Did you, did you do maybe a few more repetitions? Did you add a set? Did you try a different movement? Because all of those factors play into that, that pain experience. 
yeah, yeah. it's important because life's going to happen regardless. So being, mm-hmm. being there and being able to approach that with them. And yeah, and I mean, heck, you navigate it. Someone, and someone can have a pain flare from nothing they did in the gym or nothing they did on the court of the field. It could have been walking up the stairs or, you know, been over to play with your dog or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah if, when you, you hurt yourself getting out of your car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I found, I found people like blame themselves sometimes or like I slept wrong and it's like, well, like you were sleeping. So like, there's only so oh, much you man. can do. About Don't that. get me started yeah. on the sleeping position conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure you have a lot to say about that one. What's the optimal, yeah. what's the optimal sleeping position? I need to know. Well, I think it's with five pillows behind your head and your arms at exactly 45 degrees abduction and oh, a wedge good. between your head. Okay. Wait, what's <laughs> abduction? I'm running this you Because you're too big. Otherwise I can't sleep on my back anymore. I literally can't breathe. So that one's oh, out. God. Well, I hate to tell you then, Dylan, you're just not optimal. I, 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 there's a lot of things about my lifestyle that are not optimal. That's a, yeah. that's a whole podcast in itself. If, or if, next, uh, if, next podcast, digging uh, inter- intervention for Dylan's life. Yeah, what's what's <laughs> wrong with Dylan? If there's an apocalypse, I'm probably one of the first ones to die because of all the things I rely on to to live my daily life. Great. Alex, I've got a question for you. What are some top things that you can recommend listeners and whoever checks this podcast out or what you do with your patients? Top things that you recommend people to do to prevent ever seeing you? Uh, good question. The best things, top things in in context of in context of an athlete, weightlifter. That's kind of the audience, so sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. First, first and foremost. Well, not not a weightlifter. Let's be let's not be, let's be pedantic. Yeah. No physique, physique training, a powerlifter type, that kind of thing. Not Olympic weightlifting because we don't have that. Someone who lifts weights. Yeah. So the the yeah. first recommendation would be to make sure you you are in tune with your technique and how performing movements feels for you, and that goes back to the old stimulus to fatigue ratio, right? If you're performing a certain movement with a certain load or a certain technique and you're having the joint pain, the connective tissue pain during the movement or afterward, it's probably worth looking into before the issue gets out of hand. And by that, I mean experimenting with changing your technique somehow, maybe reducing the load, changing your tempo, altering the volume. That's what's the saying? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So all the principles you guys talk about very frequently that's the first recommendation because there there's nothing in known science that's going to beat that from a perspective of not injuring yourself or giving yourself the best chance to not experience pain. At the end of the day, everybody's going to experience pain when they're active. That's just a little bit of the fact of life. But if you're training through the fullest range of motion someone can without having joint connective tissue pain, controlling all of your movements and finding the technique that gives you the best work, that's the first step there. The second step would be having a solid plan for your progressions. That's one that typically is a red flag for a lot of a lot of athletes, weightlifters, hypertrophy trainees, physique athletes, powerlifters that I see. It's the it's the very aggressive and quick ramp ups of intensity, loading, resistance, volumes, and it, it it always comes back to them reflecting in some form or another. Well, I want to get better quick quicker. And that's when it's, a, I always take the opportunity to talk about the benefits of 
increasing increasing your intensities or your volumes or your training loads as you're tolerating, not on an arbitrary standard. And again, that goes back to your stimulus fatigue ratio and your progression indicators. But you'd be surprised a lot of people who who train or 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 in athletics aren't really aware of that. You know, they just kind of they just kind of say, well, somebody told me to do it, or this is just what I do, or I just try to add five or ten pounds to the bar every time. And yeah, and at some point you run out of you run out of adaptations to make, and that's a, a little opportunity for me, at least in clinic, to give the science the answer of what is actually occurring when your body is making adaptations and the rate at which that occurs versus how fast you can progress. And that's sometimes even having a difficult conversation with people. You need to go from training at this intensity or this volume, back it down, essentially take a deload, and maybe find the middle ground between those two areas and try to progress from there. And to give people an idea, this is often a process that occurs over weeks and months. It's not something that just takes care of itself in half a week or one or two training sessions. You know, you, you really have to understand the timeline you're playing with and be flexible with that timeline and, and understand that sometimes it can be, sometimes any symptoms you're having can get better quicker. Sometimes they can take longer to resolve, but getting your, getting a good stimulus fatigue ratio down first step, being diligent with your progressions to any intensity volume, any increases you're doing in your training program. And that doesn't mean be conservative with it, but at least be aware and making the appropriate choices for you. The third recommendation would be, and this kind of goes back to a little bit of a bro science thing, but control the weight, don't let it control you, right? A lot of injuries that occur in, in gyms and, and lifting that, that I've seen over my career have been from people who are progressing too quickly and and letting the, letting the control of the resistance get a little uh, loosey-goosey. You know, some uh, ranging from pec tears, rotator cuff tears, uh, even a few interesting cases of MCL, ACL tears. My so, gosh. yeah, yeah, um, it's it's amazing how uh, how sometimes things and people in the gym just let things get out of control. <laughs> but the progression methods, and that's one of the reasons you know that all of all the content you guys put out really mirrors all of those concepts that I'm talking about from a healthcare therapy perspective. It's just toned down a little bit. And, and that's going back to meeting someone where they are. If they're not tolerating making progressions, let's say on a training program, it might be worth talking to, talking to a therapist who is knowledgeable, knowledgeable in the area and working with you guys. Let's say you all have a client who's experiencing this, these issues and it's not getting any better. I can't imagine any of you guys would be against collaborating with a PT who's working with a client that's knowledgeable with it. And I, I've done that multiple times and it works out great. You know, it's, it's, it's cool because at least in an outpatient setting, I don't, I see, I see people two, three times a week at most, sometimes once. Um, but if you're a trainer, even in, even now in the digital age where you guys get training footage, where you talk to people more often, how'd that feel, you know, getting that collaboration. If anybody has a coach out there that is listening, that's going through any sort of, injury or pain issue that they just can't figure out, it might be worth talking to get a little collaboration going between a, a knowledgeable PT and, and your coach. So I, I just want to take, take a minute and um, those, those three points you listed. Mm -hmm. So to, uh, 
to bring that into terms that we we use a lot, what I'm hearing is technique, pick good SFR exercises, and fatigue management. That's it. That's 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 your blueprint. That's your blueprint. Trevor, technique, <laughs> technique, volume, intensity, and fatigue management—basically, all the things that we say. Yeah, yep. well, and volume, uh, volume, intensity can be put into fatigue management because that's all encompassing of managing fatigue by mm -hmm. varying intensity, volume. You know the the beauty of of what you guys, the concepts you all talk about. You know, Doctor Mike, some other people out there that are that are really up to the science is that what you're talking about can be directly applied to anyone going through an injury almost one-to-one. -one. You just have to alter the variables a little bit. Yeah. And that, you know, that's, I think that's great because in the exercise field, there's a lot of people now who are up, up to date on the best evidence practice, not only from a healthcare perspective and a general wellness perspective, but applying it to science and athletics too. That's, it's awesome to see. There was a real big gap there for, for many, many years. Yeah. I and there still is to be clear. There still is. There definitely still is just as a general fitness sphere as a whole. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to take a moment though, and just um, talk about a little bit of that. And the, this is kind of for me, because of the three of us, I can, I can have a different perspective of this, of getting outside of physique training enthusiasts um and into other other athletic endeavors mm -hmm. um you know i do brazilian jiu-jitsu yeah um i have done it for nearly a decade and had have have had no big injuries that's hold on that's crazy shimmy you're cutting out i can't hear a word you're saying. nearly a decade you've been doing that i know i'm fucking you can't old. hear me <laughs> yeah well uh, I think but, he just called. I think he just called you a boomer, Trevor. I am <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Me but too. I'm sure. One of in that you know, of course, I've had mild injuries. Mm -hmm. Again, it, it goes back to like you said. You, if you're being physically active, things are going to happen. You're going to get bumps and bruises along the road. But I've had no major injuries, and and I talk to guys who are generally they're younger, you know, early twenties. Um, and they've had a lot of injuries or they're constantly hurt and not just with like, Oh, I'm feeling kind of stiff today, but like actually like pretty major injuries, um, that lead to, because they continue to ignore them, multiple guys I know have had surgery. Um, and one of the big things I see, and I try to talk to these guys about is like, they're like, how do you, you know, you, you, you're not hurt, you know, you're here all the time how do you do that and I'm like well i don't have to roll every single day like i'm in adcc finals i don't have to give a hundred percent every single time mm -hmm. and you know that's kind of talking about like how a lot of these the the principles can fit into different um like different avenues so you know there's the help how how fatigue management and all this stuff fits into healthcare and how it fits into physique training but also how it fits into other athletics like these same things apply regardless of what you're doing you know we we generally us three are are talking about you know using good as for exercises managing your fatigue all these things in the in the context of physique training mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it stops there 
And I think hearing you talk about it is really cool because it's kind of showing like what most people would consider completely unrelated. It's just like physical therapy and even with just a general population person that's not trained. These same things can be taken and applied there. For sure. And, you know, it, going back to the part about the general population, I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody with some sort of ailment from lower back pain to knee pain to ankle pain or whatever. And when I suggest, hey, let's work on squatting, they look at me like I have three heads and I'm breathing fire. I can't squat. No way. There's no way I can do that. <laughs> and then you get them to just stand up out of the chair. And I say, guess what? You just did a squat. <laughs> and then they think, oh, well, that wasn't that bad. No, it's not. So why don't we step away from the chair now? You try to bend your knees, stay upright, control your descent, do it again. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's, that's it. And talk about a little bit about one thing that would probably be interesting is that that blending of where the weight room crosses over into athletics or everyday life in terms of your quality of life, experiencing pain, injuring yourself. Um, and if, if you look at injury, and I'll be specific here, musculoskeletal orthopedic injuries, nearly all of those type of injuries come down to a lack of tolerance to either exhibiting a certain amount of force or accepting it. So take your basketball player who tears their, their ACL. The structures of the tissues of their knee were not able to accept the load that was being asked upon it. The same thing with your pitcher that tears a labrum. The same thing with your person who bends over to pick up a box of Christmas decorations and, and hurts their back. It's, it's all a little bit of that force equation. So what's the best way to become more tolerant to for your body to accepting force? Lifting weights. <laughs> or anything that, that's against resistance, right? So um, there's been a lot of debate over the past couple of years that I, I find entertaining about how much range of motion should you train through? How much? That's how much I wanted to get into this with you, actually. Okay, shoot. Yeah, so <laughs> something that I've gotten a lot, I'm sure, I, well, I know for a fact Shimmy has gotten a lot, and I'm sure Dylan has, is people saying, uh, why do you use so much range of motion? What's good about using that much range of motion? Is it safe to use that much range of motion? Mm -hmm. Is getting in these such these extreme positions, is that okay? You know, does, isn't that bad? That looks bad. And I just want you as, you know, you know, we're all fucking meatheads. <laughs> You're the doctor here. I'll let you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to have seen that narrative evolve over the last five or so years, you know, and it's it's just going to get more prevalent when social media hits a big, right? But I remember conversations like that going back to 2004 or five, you know, I was Googling on my dial-up internet speed how to increase your vertical jump, and I run across a book that's like, hey, you should be doing deep squats with load to increase your leg strength and then apply it to sport, right? Made total sense. And in that same thread, there's people saying, no, you can't bend your knees that much. You're like, your knee will explode. There'll be bone everywhere. And that's that narrative has existed for a long time. And part of it, I wonder if it just comes from now being so prevalent from people wanting to make a name for themselves, right? You have, I won't mention any names, but certain <laughs> concepts going around that if you if you bend a joint past 89 degrees, we'll say, <laughs> then, then, then you're not... Yeah, then you're not training optimal. So, you know, from a from a scientific research perspective, there is 
a mound of evidence, good peer reviewed quality research that has high validity that shows the way to improve general tissue health is through loading a joint or a muscle through its furthest range of motion possible. So what that comes down to is everything from bone, from bone density to muscle belly density, to tendon thickness, to ligament thickness, all of that responds, as you guys put it, with a stretch under load. So from the injury pain perspective, take the example of someone who, who struggles to, to move their arm back here or to overhead press down here. If you're able to load that tissue and take it to a full range of motion, what, what's really going to hurt you in your case, for example, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you can lift X amount of weight with deep presses, overhead, vertical, deep pulls to a full range of motion, and as you're rolling, someone grabs your arm and twists it, you're so much less likely to get injured there just because your joint is accustomed to the force in those extreme ranges of motion. So there, there's no drawback to training hard through the full ranges of motion that, that you guys talk about all the time. Now, in context, if somebody tries that at first and they have issues with it, pain, instability, difficulty performing it, that's an excellent foot in the doorway to talk about the graded exposure to it. Because from a from a performance perspective or how that translates to athletics or or perform or uh, prehab rehab, if you can take somebody who, let's say, can do a full deep astograph squat with 400 some pounds versus somebody who can do a half range of motion squat with 600 some pounds, who's going to be stronger in those positions that might be required of them on the field of play or the court? The yeah. person who can squat that through a fuller range of motion. Yeah. So the training through the training with full range of motion, there, there's there's no scientific evidence to even suggest that it's inherently harmful. There's no research that I'm aware of that even suggests that it's the suboptimal way to prevent injury or or to prevent pain or to increase your performance. It, it's, it's just not there. Um, and a lot of it, I think, comes down to it's it's way less entertaining or sexy to say you need to work hard and take your joints to their full range of motion. That's that's just it, full stop. Versus, mm -hmm. I have this one secret that if you stop at this specific angle, you're you're training optimally, or do this so you won't end up in snap city. And training to a full range of motion is your best way to. I hate this term, but bulletproof yourself. Yeah, I hate that term too. But it. Yeah, I can't stand it. But point across, but. The, so so yeah I mean, putting uh, butter in my coffee you know, <laughs> so next time shimmy or i post a video of some like crazy range of motion uh don't tell us we're gonna hurt, blow our shoulders up please nope <laughs> just just tag just tag alex well, yeah. well, i think what everybody has to remember is, is what alex already noted is it's the c word and it's not cunt it's context Yes. <laughs> right. Like what you have to what you have to remember is when you see Trevor doing something or me doing something, what you have to remember is that we didn't do this always and it took yeah. us time to get there. Instagram doesn't really lend itself to that sort of thing. But I'm sure when Alex is working with somebody, and I know that when Trevor and myself and when DG is working with somebody, 
you know, they can only go to the range of motion that they can control. And just because I can do something a certain way doesn't mean that you can. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't. It just means that it may take you more time. So just looking at somebody's movement pattern and mimicking it is fine so long as you're capable of doing it. And it doesn't mean that just because you're not capable of doing it, that what I'm doing is more optimal because it's about what's optimal for you at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you guys, when you first picked up a weight or got on a machine, you were doing full range of motion squats or presses or deficit push-ups, right? There was a limitation to that. Mm-hmm. Heck, when I first started squatting, I had a broomstick in my mom's bedroom trying to sit down as deep as I could and I fell backwards, right? It takes... It takes well, hold years on, and hold on a practice. second. Hold on a second. That that's it's funny that you say that because if you actually think about that, people that have never lifted weights before that are young, because you just said us, so you already know that we started lifting young, and a lot of people do. Most people that have never lifted weights before can lift through huge ranges of motion because they have nothing hindering them, right? Yep. So if they started that way, then you know they could just do it forever. It's usually those people that like they start out bad mm-hmm. and they build on those habits for anywhere for two to 10 years yeah. that they have to sort of unlearn and relearn. But beginners, no, beginners can pretty much hit huge depths from Jump Street because they have the mobility to do it, especially if they mm-hmm. were athletes already. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that's a, another little bit of a topic to that's interesting if your general hypertrophy training went to a therapy clinic having difficulty with something, you're probably going to see a bit of a premium placed on what they would call mobility, right? But in the context of PT, a lot of us get that wrong and think and confuse mobility with flexibility. Yeah. So you get that confused all the time. They don't understand the difference. And there is a difference. Yeah. There's a huge difference. You know, if, if you're having, I don't know, hamstring pain with, with stiff legged deadlifts, and I have you sit in a chair and bend over and touch your toe. Yeah, you're probably increasing the flexibility of your hamstring, but the mobility part is being able to move through that range of motion and exhibit strength in it. Mm-hmm. So, so from that context, and this might take us down another different avenue. If it's important that if you're seeing someone for your issues, to be very clear about asking them questions, what is this intervention helping me with? How does this apply to my situation? How does this apply to my goal? So you're not wasting time. Yeah, I that actually brings kind of is a good segue into another question I have for you. And the, the crux of this question is, what can people do? Like, you know, what can they go and ask a therapist when they start if, it, if they're going to be a good therapist? And, and the, the reason I ask this question is actually I, I recently had a client of mine who um, has been going to physical therapy. And he texted me one day and, and he was like, hey, you know, I am, I, this is what my physical therapist told me. And I just kind of want to talk to you. Um, she said I should, um, you know, I should never do any lunges or squatting motions where my knee goes past my toes. And I should never go below 90 degrees because it's just awful for my knees and it's never going to be safe and I should never do it. And I should never you know, come this far back on any kind of like a chest press. If I go, if I'm going to bench, I should only 90 degrees. And I just feel like it's wrong, but I want, he wanted my thoughts on it. So what are some things that 
I'm not going to get into how I handled that situation. That's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear it though. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Basically, I said not to not to say that the therapist is wrong, but they're wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure, that was a good response. <laughs> um, but um, uh, what are some things that that people can ask, especially if they are if they are training with weights, if they are doing sport activities, that they don't want to get a physical therapist that basically tells them like become like you know uh, give up what you're doing give up what you're doing because yeah. it's terrible for you yeah there there are definitely a lot of absolute statements made in my profession that from one reason or another have persisted over time and it it, it doesn't help a lot of the active population coming in or even the general population um some things to look for are it, it pays to do a little bit of research before you go into a clinic right and there are kind of three different categories i'll put places in 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 america um your general outpatient clinic that accepts insurance so these will be your people to where you go into a clinic you have a referral from a doctor they take it um you'll typically be sharing time slots with other patients so when i was in the outpatient world you would i'll sometimes see two or three people at once um, you're relying on PT tech help or the unskilled support staff, and their job would be me to tell them, hey, go supervise this person doing this exercise, right? And these are typically your untrained undergrad students or um, people just looking for a day job that don't really have any knowledge in the field. So you can imagine what type of quality of care that gets. And it's oftentimes busy work, right? So like in the case of in the case of your person squatting, they might have them laying on a table, lifting their leg up, doing sideline leg raises so that's your first type of clinic um your second type of clinic would be your independent practitioners cash-based therapists to where you don't have to go through a doctor to a referral and they're usually very open about the services they can provide so if if you're someone who is serious about hypertrophy training athletics anything in that realm try to steer toward that type of therapist um, just from the get-go, because you're probably getting someone with a little more experience in in treating your your specific issues. And the third type of clinic is the physician-owned type of clinic, to where if you see a doctor and say, I'm having this type of issue, and they'll say, oh, we have therapy in-house. Let's go on and set you up. It's mainly, it's mostly going to be experienced like the first general outpatient. So doing a little research and, and searching out for people, and that's as simple as getting on Google and typing in cash-based therapy near me. Um, this, let's say you go into a clinic, you find somewhere you might like, you think this is hopeful. At the end of the day, it's your care that you're dealing with. It's your time and the services are being provided to you. I would, I would encourage everyone to go to that clinic and ask the questions of how long are the treatment sessions? Do I get to work with my therapist one-on-one -on -one for the entire session? Um, is my, is the therapist going to be experienced in the issues I'm having with? Can I talk to them? And there's no place in the world that's going to tell you no to those questions. So gathering that information and making sure someone has has a has a cursory knowledge of what you're dealing with is definitely the first step. And you, you you'll be able to tell off the bat if if someone is able to have a have a discussion like we're having with with the issues at hand. The second part is to the third part to that is to ask very pointed questions on what your therapist's response is. So, for example, if we're talking about changing your your workout routines, your technique, et cetera, et cetera, 
and you ask me, what does that look like? Can you give me an example of that? They better have a good answer of what that would look like. <laughs> Otherwise, you're probably spinning your wheels. If you go to a therapy clinic and someone is using is using terms that they can't clearly define for you, that would be another another red flag for me. Let's say you go into a place and they say, oh, well, you have trigger points as the reason you have pain. And you ask, can you tell me what that is? And they can't give you a clear definition. You're probably better off finding somewhere else. To your example, if you're asking these questions of a therapist and they use absolutist language, like you should never, this is awful, this is bad, you're going to injure yourself doing it this way, big red flag. Um, and, and because that's all context dependent to someone's goal, like we've been talking about. Uh, and the most important one probably is to ask the therapist you're thinking about working with, what is the clear plan that you have in mind for me that we can work together with to progress toward my goal? After talking to someone, initial evaluation, you first meet someone, if you ask that question and they can give you an idea of let's start here, reassess how this goes and make adjustments to get to that end goal, you're probably dealing with someone who's going to be able to help you a little bit. Um, and to add on to that, with follow-up sessions, if your therapist is constantly reassessing how your training sessions are going, are you are you having good pain responses, are you progressing on the things that are important to you, and is willing to make adjustments from the plan, then it's probably going to turn out pretty well. But to make that boil down to a few points, ask questions about how someone can help you. Make sure they can clearly define the issue at hand and what you're dealing with. Make sure they can lay out a plan for you with all of the variables that you guys talk about accounted for. Make sure they're reassessing every time you see them <clears throat> and make sure they have some sort of prior treatment experience. That's super helpful, man. Uh, I really appreciate you kind of getting going into that. That's uh, I think that's that's something that a lot of people will be able to take a lot of insight from because and, it, you know, a lot of times you go to a doctor and they just, you know, refer you out. You know, I, I've I've been to an outpatient place. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my experience, if you are someone who is active and are someone who is training, you're probably not going to have a good experience. You're not going to have the experience that actually gets you where you want to go. Yeah. And one thing I forgot to mention there, too, is in my world, we, we classify the different types of interventions or treatments we give people as either passive or active. Mm -hmm. Passive treatments would fall into the realm of joint manipulation, soft tissue massage, electrical stimulation, cupping, dry needling, things like that. And th that has a time and a place in, in a plan of care for someone who is a serious athlete or, or hypertrophy trainee. But if that is the focus of most of the sessions that you go to, you're probably not going to see much benefit from that. And your therapist should be able to explain to you these are some techniques we can use to to help get your foot in the door to making progressions if your pain symptoms are too bad now. But we're using these as a gateway to progressing your activity tolerance more so than you need to do these things to get better all the time because there's no way around it. A good therapist is basically your guide that can give you a blueprint and the information you need to critically think the process through yourself and perform it yourself. And to do that, you have to do the work. Yep. Yep. There, and there's there's a lot of it in my profession too that do this one modality or this one specific manual technique that will fix your problems. 
And then you do it, you might feel better for a little bit. Your problem comes back to the next day or even that day, and you're right back in the door asking for it again. Yep. Yep. So making sure that your sessions, if you're seeing someone, the majority of the time is being active and working towards your goal rather than being passive and having things done to you rather than you being participatory in the process is so important. Yeah. Uh, um, Alex, you got time for one more question? Yeah, yeah shoot. Out here. Trevor, do you have something that you wanted to say? I was going to ask if either of you guys had any questions. If not, I have a funny. Uh, you want to end with it? Yeah. Well, what I think is funny. I mean, it might not be funny, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so um, if you could briefly go through, um, this is something I've struggled with. I, I still struggle with it. I'm doing a movement and something feels off. First instinctual uh like thing that goes through my head is like just keep going. See if it does see if it goes <laughs> goes away, right? Probably yeah, it, it's it's actually something I have to fight constantly. It's like, okay, wait, no, just put it down. Like actually walking away from an exercise is a very difficult thing to do. Like and working away from a workout, if you had something where where like say it was like that was not a good pain you know it wasn't it was very mm -hmm. acute it wasn't in the muscle something like that um but um maybe you could touch on that but really i'm just kind of i wanted to hit on um in what instance would someone go see you like what what type of injury what are they looking for um to go see a physical therapist versus something that like maybe will heal on its own. Like what are we kind of looking for uh, as far as that goes and how do, you, yeah. how do you navigate that process? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, there's that fine line between knowing what, as you put it, is acute or uncontrolled as I often convey it versus something that you're in control of is a little more chronic. So some red, red flags immediately are you're doing a movement and you have an acute pain oftentimes described as you know stabbing or or burning or shaking any instability that's a good sign to just back off a little bit but that seems common sense right so a lot of a lot of that comes down to are your symptoms controlled with the movement or are they being provoked more so in your case pick whichever exercise you want let's say you're doing a doing a machine press or a bench press and you start your warm-up sets and you have a little nagging pain that you think, yeah, you know, it's a warm-up set. It'll get better as I get into the first working set. You go through your warm-up process and you get to those working sets and you're performing them, but that pain you're having is slowly getting worse. Or maybe even it's taking a, a worse jump within the set or between sets. That's that's probably a good idea. If you, if you have tried adjusting your techniques, examining your training volumes and progressions, and the issue still won't get any better, it's probably a good idea to seek out a PT or a movement specialist, a specialist of some kind that can provide you with some insight of how to address that issue. Now, I wouldn't, that's not to say if you have a pain with something and you haven't tried any of those own adjustments yourself, the alarm bell immediately rings and you run for help, right? Because a lot of the pains you experience day to day in the gym, if you adjust your adjusted principles that you guys talk about a lot, it'll most likely take care of itself. If it's lingering around, go see someone. And by lingering, I mean, if it's a consistent progression through your mesocycle or, or training months, even when you're deloading or managing fatigue well, that's a good sign to probably seek out help. Um, or if in your training cycle, the pain you're experiencing gets worse during a session and that happens consistently, let's say maybe over a period of a week, you train 
you train chest or, or shoulders twice a week and you're having that pain, it gets worse during the session. It eases off a little bit. The next session, it gets worse again, eases off at rest, gets worse. It's probably time to seek out some help. Note that answers the question a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Do you just out of curiosity, do you ever see people on the extreme ends where this is just, again, kind of for my own curiosity, but like someone who maybe because um, I imagine that, you know, with the evidence based kind of like fatigue management, it sometimes breeds people who come on one extreme where everything is a potential injury. And then you have people who are just like, you know, just completely destroyed. Pain oh, is yeah. normal. I'm just going to push through it. Like, do you see these kinds of people? Oh yeah. All, all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's commonly a little bit, it depends on the person. If, if they've been experiencing some pain or difficulty for a chronic case of months, it's usually on the, on the former side of that, of everything is awful. Everything hurts. I can't make any progress. Um, very rarely do I see the people who kind of like run through the wall and nothing stops them. Yeah. Probably um, yeah. But is never see anybody. Like, yeah, yeah and, exactly. and that might be that might be a little confirmation bias too, right? Because people of that of that nature probably aren't seeking out healthcare help. Right. They're right. probably just thinking like they're, no. The run I'm, the run is kind of a limp at this point, but it's still they're still yeah, progressing they're, forward somehow. And, and I, I'll see a few of them, but they're like walking in the door, dragging their leg behind them, you know, <laughs> bruised and battered. But yeah, that, yeah. those conversations are a lot easier to have because it's it's really straightforward. Hey, you're pretty beat up. We need to cool you off a little bit. Right, right. But bring it down a little bit. Yeah, navigating the waters of getting people of the extreme who are very fear avoidant, um, very low tolerance to activity. That's that's a little bit more of a net, of a difficult process to navigate. But it really does go back to trying to find some way to give the person a small win. And yeah. for anybody listening who who isn't seeing a, a PT or or has questions about it. Find the things that can give yourself the small wins. If you're having difficulty with the movement, scale the intensity back, scale the range of motion maybe a little bit until you can improve past it. Scale your volume back. Take the small win in the short term. A little bit of delayed gratification so you don't make your issue worse and end up having to hear somebody like me talk at you for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great thing to end on. One thing I wanted to ask before Tara asked this question um, you didn't mention um, BPC uh, or TB500 protocols at all. I'm very uh, concerned. Yes. What is I'm the protocol? BPC. Yeah. Blanket but, blanket uh, uh, dosage recommendations, please. Me? <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I'm woefully ignorant to that side of things. <laughs> oh, good. Good. You probably, it's probably good if you just don't even touch it. But yeah. to, actually, you know, Interesting you bring it up because that does complicate matters a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's when, you know, if you, for anybody enhanced out there listening and you're have, if you're having issues, it's okay to talk to your healthcare provider about it. You know, we have, we have HIPAA. There's no way anything you tell me I can go report. Right. So, yes. so, and that, that does, that does come into playing into the factor that it might help you for somebody who, to coordinate with someone if you're getting your labs done, if you're if you're having blow work done for somebody who's more knowledgeable with that, if you're having issues or an injury or pain trying to rehab from it, to to give their contact information to your PT and have them collaborate. And you know, I I would have no problem with calling someone and saying, Hey, explain this to me like I'm woefully ignorant to any exercise. What do these 
what do these extraneous factors have uh, have an effect on their rehab process? What can it look like in terms of of me helping them progress? Because that, that's a factor. It really it, it is right. Yeah, I imagine um, if you were just for the sake of um, experiment, uh, like a thought experiment. I, I mean, well, you were talking earlier about like people who make um, like very aggressive progressions. You know, if you introduce mm-hmm. something like PDs into that, it just becomes. Oh, uh, even God. more of a concern yeah. and that's where you see guys where their strength goes up and surpasses the the strength of their connective tissues right and they're making these large at, at, uh, jumps in load uh it's something that trevor and i navigate with my training because you know i i have the capacity a lot of the time to be adding you know maybe 10 pounds to a lift 15 but we have to kind of keep that at bay because of the fact that if you're just increasing loads so rapidly that mm-hmm. sometimes the body can't keep up um, so yeah, that is an interesting thing to 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 think about in a hypothetical world where I, where I've seen uh, enhanced people in the clinic before. Um, that's that's one of the first things I'll just be straight up honest and say, hey, tell me, are are is there yeah. performance enhancing drugs in the mix here? If so, <laughs> if so, hey, let's talk, let's talk about. Me. Are you yeah, on steroids? Yeah, I mean, I I have no problem with that because if you're honest yeah. with me, then we we can navigate that together through your rehab process. Especially, you know, a few cases come to mind with with major muscle tears. Yeah, because because that that progression is going to look a little bit different compared to to your average Joe that walks in off the street, right? I might spend a little bit more time with someone who who is enhanced early on in the acute stages doing a little more isometric exercises or maybe placing a little bit more of a premium on doing some eccentric overloaded things rather than just taking that more aggressive progression early on and explain that to them. And and you'll be thanking me for this later down the road when your tissue is a little more tolerant. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad we touched on that. Uh, Trevor, you had a question? Yeah. So I I also have a question. Okay. Dylan's mad that you didn't give a BPC dosage recommendation. I'm mad because you didn't tell us how many lacrosse balls, foam rollers, and bands, <laughs> how long we have to prehab for. So, you know, a good recommendation for that is if you're planning a, a pretty hard workout session, then it should at least be twice the length of what your plan session is. So okay. foam rollers, get out the lacrosse balls. I mean, if you have to, put it right in the butt cheek and just sit on it, roll it all out. Okay, so my my question was actually going to be around prehab. Sure. Anyway, (laughs) so that actually works. Um, The real question from what you from from what from what you just said, I I, obviously I know your thoughts on it, but I was going to ask you um, what your thoughts were on prehab anyway, and if you think that it's a good idea. Um, To me, and I've done it in the past. I can't wrap my head around it. And uh, I think that makes absolutely no sense that, um, you know, I've seen guys that can bench 500 pounds, but they're warming up doing like pull-aparts with like the lightest band ever thinking that it matters as an example, or even something as simple as a bro bodybuilder doing internal and external rotations with a cable or a plate. Or a dumbbell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, yes. if I can demonstrate this, and they're standing doing this right here, yeah. and there's no actual force yes. being applied to your right hitter cup. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that drives me crazy. Point? Is there a point or is there a purpose in doing any of this stuff, or is there not? That's a nuanced question. Now, to define, it sounds like how you're defining prehab is the use of stretching modalities as a warm up, essentially, right? 
I, I'm, I'm defining it as the use of um, seemingly specific, but actually end up being non-specific movements that are barely loadable as a means of prepping the athlete or trainee for harder activity. Good definition. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm very clear when I use the term prehab to anybody who lifts weights or exercises or, or is an athlete at all, that your prehab is done in your workouts by what we talked about earlier, training through your fullest range of motion that doesn't give you pain, listening to your technique cues, managing your fatigue, stimulus fatigue ratio. That's that's the true prehab. The the benefit of some of the things you're referring to, like your foam rolling, like your, you know, your band pull apart or your shoulder breaker exercises or your band rotations and all. If it gives someone benefit, I'm very hesitant to tell them not to do it in a in a clinical okay. setting. Um, and, you know, scientifically, we know a lot of that is just a placebo effect. There's there's really nothing to it that, as you said, if you're strong enough to to be lifting weights recreationally, doing things with a, a band is not going to provide you any benefit. Um, so if some I'll turn to those things sometimes if the principles that we talked about here tonight are not giving someone a response and see if it helps them even from the perspective of them buying into it and thinking, oh, you know, if I feel a little tightness in my pec or my hamstring or whatever, but I foam roll it and it feels a bit better going into my warm, into my warm-up sets, have at it. Gotcha. But I would caution anybody listening that may see all of the prehab routines and all of the things that are said that you should do to, to, to really ask yourself, what application do they have in your program and is it worth it? So from a, from a scientific evidential perspective, picking your first exercise and progressively warming up to your working set is the way to go, 100%. But if, if it makes somebody feel better to grab a band and do some internal external rotations, if you do it from the perspective of this makes me feel better, it might make my working sets a little bit better, but you understand this isn't the, the key to my fitness progression or wellness, I have no problem with it in the place of somebody of a program. So that's a little contextual too, because depending on the person you're working with, they can take that information and kind of take it to the extreme and spend your 30, 45 minutes doing that type of warm up when it is not really doing anything to help. And if that gets to be the case, then I'll say, all right, here, here's the science behind it. Here's your warm up might look like this. Pick one or two of those pre-heavy things that you like that makes you feel good, that maybe reduces your symptoms or maybe makes you have a better mind-muscle connection, whatever it may be. And let's spend maybe do 10, 15 repetitions of each and then get into the warm-up sets. So it's it's almost like if somebody comes to me and is a little bit, for lack of a better word, addicted to those things, weaning them off of it slowly as their understanding of proper warm-ups and progressions becomes a little bit more clear. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to buy-in that you were talking about earlier where if it's not particularly harmful and they find some benefit mm -hmm you're probably not going to take it away from them, you know, uh, maybe allow them to do some of it. If it starts to become a hindrance, um, then yeah, then it would be like sometime where you'd intervene. Right. Yep. And that's, that goes back to the whole placebo and nocebo conversation. If, yeah. if, if somebody finds benefit and they think it helps them, as long as it's not doing them harm or slowing their progress or impeding their progress, I'm not going to step in and say, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this because then I become the person that we just talked about. You should avoid using extremist <laughs> language because it's, it's way more nuanced than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and 
and when you think about injury as not just a physiological thing it may have mm -hmm. you know a psychological it does have psychological components uh, that becomes a little bit more um yeah and last thing on it but to to apply that if you do do some band rotations or or maybe some sort of quad stretching or foam rolling or whatever and that makes your symptoms better during the workout you should 100% do it and then very gradually try to experiment how you're feeling after your symptoms have calmed down doing whatever it may be that makes you feel better and you'll often find that you don't need or feel necessary to do those things that you did to make yourself feel better in the first place yeah yeah uh i imagine uh I'll probably stop after this because i could probably talk about this for a long time but i imagine <laughs> a lot of the time when people feel the need like maybe they have to do some sort of activation need to activate mm -hmm. my glutes before i do this it's probably yeah. something that needs to be addressed in like training technique or one of those yeah. components that you talked about earlier it's not the the activation that is going to make or break their workout right no no yeah. definitely not it, it, it definitely is like that's an increasing frequency of people saying, oh, I need to activate my glutes before I squat or do lunges or <laughs> activate my rotator cuff before I do things. And, you know, the first time I, I hear something like that, I, I just let it go and then talk about, OK, let's talk about your technique. And then usually people will fill up in the right places if you if you can figure out their technique. But if they keep going to those things, then I'll start to have the conversation of, well, you know, when you're doing a squat, your glutes are actually active the whole time. Heck, when you're walking, your glutes are active the whole time. Otherwise, you'd be falling on your face. Yeah. And, and then they'll yeah, say, what do you mean glutes. by that? Oh, yeah. I love the, the glute amnesia. How do I wake up my glutes? Wake them up. Uh, it's, if I had to rank my top three least favorite nocebic fitness things or wellness things, it's the glute activation, the don't let your knees go over your toes, and you have to maintain a neutral posture pelvic tilt. Those yeah. are my ones I could yeah. Yeah. Uh, tilt. I spend a lot of time pushing back against those. I'm wearing, I'm wearing posture straps right now. <laughs> I can be in this position all day. All right, you we'll know. let you get out of here, Alex. Uh, this is a really, really insightful conversation. I learned a lot, and I think the uh, listeners will learn yeah, a lot as well. Great. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, um, thanks for having me on, yeah, guys. I, yeah, you thank, know. thank you so much. Is there uh, anything you uh, want to plug or just give a shout out to? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if anybody's interested, um, I'm planning on opening my own online physical therapy, uh, clinic. I've started, you. I've started, uh, it's going to be called just lift performance therapy. Please. Um, started, uh, trying to get the marketing out a little bit, making some Instagram content, trying to navigate that whole process. It's Sweet. pretty foreign, pretty foreign to me, but that's the end goal. It's fun. So that's awesome, dude. Yeah. Will you be able to work outside of your state? How's that work? Yeah, actually, now um, there's a physical therapy compact that if you get licensed in uh, in one state, it actually applies to all of them if you uh, if you pay for it. Mm -hmm. well, Very uh, cool. Let's, and let's uh, we to send some clients your way. Yeah, for sure. And um, we there's there's legislation now. You know, we have direct access where you can come see a therapist without a doctor's referral. But it looks like some legislation is going to pass where that direct access is unlimited. So there's no awesome. no specific constraints to time or sessions. So more accessibility. If, Yep. Sweet. It'll be pretty nice. Awesome, Alex. Well, uh, I'll make sure to link all your stuff down below and uh we'll definitely shout you out a lot because uh I, I find that um you know this is super helpful. One one thing I want to end on, I'm very curious uh as to how I can personally get better about this stuff. Obviously, I'm not I'm not a PT, I'm not gonna become one, but I would like to know more about it. Do you have a book or some sort of resource? I know you mentioned barbell medicine that that the mm -hmm. layman could refer to, maybe become a more informed consumer. 
um, you know, just maybe as a coach, I can just be more informed on these things and how, what to look out for. Yeah, um, some of the some of the best resources, you know, Barbell Medicine does a really good job of compiling a lot of research on pain and injury in, in context to um, to athletes. There there are some other resources, uh, clinicalathlete.com. That's another PT named uh, Dr. Quinn Hinnock. He he's Wait, really good. Oh yeah, yep. I'm sure you guys have heard of him. He he's great. Um, I, you can also start to learn um, deciphering some research articles for yourself. I know uh, Greg Knuckles does a really good job of compiling a lot of research that that can be applied in the uh, rehab prehab world. Um, and it's it's stuff that that I read all the time, and it's applicable to to clinical practice and yeah. how you how you exercise to avoid to avoid pain and injury and performance. It's it's a lot of good stuff. Those are the primary ones I turn to. I, I don't think I'd recommend going on the uh, ncbi.com and looking up uh, raw research articles. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet, yeah, no, um, I I even noticed that you listen. I mean, you're you're a consumer a lot of the hypertrophy stuff, and I think. Yeah that especially with your mind and how and how you understand this stuff you can take some of those principles and apply them over mm -hmm. to your practice which is i imagine what you do to some extent yeah i, I sometimes i joke and tell people i might use two percent of what i learned through pt grad school getting a, a doctorate of all things but 98 percent of the stuff i do is training information essentially yeah, yeah i don't listen to one of your training things you're listening to like the the, the round table of like Cass and Dr. Mike, I could hear oh, the yeah, background yeah. while you're training. I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> those are really entertaining too. I, I love those too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've actually listened to them a couple of times just to tease out like some of the biomechanics discussions and how things Yeah, yeah. Go, but, I'm sure it's very interesting for you. Yeah. Sweet. Well, uh, I would love to have you back on at some point. So maybe yeah, we could any, uh, can chat. Anytime yeah. you guys want, feel free, hit me up. You know, I, I think I've badgered all of you on Instagram at one point in time or another. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's good. We have the back and forth, man. All right. Well, I'll let you get out of here. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on, man. Thanks, Thanks. Have a good one, man.